team. Kia ora tafana. Hey guys. Um, I'm going to warn you. Um, normally, uh, I have control over what I say. Um, <laughs> I am in a bit of a COVID fog, um, which is going to make this sermon really interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you guys are like, yes. <laughs> he's usually off the rails. Imagine what he's going to do this morning. Um, so uh, I really want to encourage you next Sunday night. Um, yes, I do pronounce it differently. It's, I call it the Enneagram. It's because the first word is nine in Greek. So, so it's the Enneagram. It actually talks about nine numbers. Um, and Barbie's amazing at it. You will get a lot out of it. And it's great for the family. So come along next Sunday night. Um, you really will enjoy it. Um, and it will be eye-opening for you. It's been eye-opening for me personally. Okay, now let's get into this. Um, when it comes to preaching, and even uh, when we talk about um, interpreting Scripture or studying Scripture, um, there is a way in which we approach it. And it's important how we approach it. Uh, theologically, we start with this. We start with examining the meaning of the text in its context. This is very important because we need to understand what God was saying then. And out of that, we then move it into how do we apply that then in our context? This in theology is called fusing the contexts. There you go, you've learned something new this morning. We're done. See you next week. Um, no. <laughs> Fusing context. Um, th there's a reason why this is really important. I think Scott McKnight makes a really good comment here. He says, The foundation for the quest for original meaning is our respect for God's word given in space and time. Our respect for what God said then. Without this, there's no controls over what the gospel is and what it should be said in the name of God. Let me use a really easy example. Jesus said, Love your neighbors. Now, if we do not think of what it meant back then and we just apply it today, well, love can mean many different things to many different people. And what does he mean by neighbours? The people next to us, the people down the street, the country next door. What was he talking about? But when we think about this in its original context, well, first of all, Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, which is just a, a kind of a, a, a type of Hebrew and a Semitic language in a world that spoke mostly Greek or Latin. So the people that would have been listening must have been Jewish to understand what he was saying. So he was obviously speaking to a very Jewish crowd. The foreigners would not have understood a word that he was saying. And if he's talking to a Jewish crowd and he says, love, well, even though he was speaking in Aramaic, the gospel writers wrote in Greek. And love in Greek has many different meanings. Do you guys know what that is? Some of those meanings? Yep, we have eros, phileo, agape. And so the different types of Greek will define what love is. For us in English, there's just one word, love. But in this case, it's agape love. So it means something far more. It's God's love. And God's love was to give 
his only son as a sacrifice. That's how God's love is expressed. It's everything. So this love is not just simply, hey, I like you. No, this is everything. I will die for you. And who's your neighbor? Well, if he's only talking to the Jews, the Jewish neighbors would have been Jewish. So does that mean love your neighbor means to give everything to the church, to Christians, to non-Christians, to non-people that you don't know? What does it mean? Understanding context then helps us apply to what we do today. The problem today is that not many pastors, not many teachers, not many people can understand the meaning of the text in its context. So they just kind of turn it, twist it, and write it up for themselves, just as they understand it today. But as we've seen for a very simple verse like love your neighbor, that could mean a lot of different things. Without understanding context, we can make it up any way we like. Imagine the more complicated verses, the more difficult verses, like, you know, women should be wearing head coverings in church. Without context, we won't understand what that means for us today. Now, here's the thing. In this morning's passage that we're looking at, we're in Galatians, we're going into chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. I I do this thing at the beginning of these series where I kind of send an email out to people I'm hoping who will want to preach, and I allow them to pick. I I basically break up all the passages, and I tell them, pick one that you want to preach on. And I usually get left with the most difficult ones. (laughs) like this one this morning because if it comes to context Paul is completely out of context here he breaks the very theological rule I just told you preaching in context listen up he says this tell me you who want to be under the law are not aware of what the law says for it is written that Abraham had two sons one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh but his son by the free woman was born according to the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you are never born a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, and are children of the promise. And at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. What does that all mean? (laughs) It's like, huh, now preach on that. So first of all, let me just say, there is no such thing as a covenant of the two women. Paul is making that up. It's not biblical. Hagar and, and uh, Sarah were not covenants. But he's using it to make a point. He's going in a little bit of an illogical way to address a real problem in the church. 
And that problem is these people are causing people to kind of stumble and go the wrong way. So he's like, okay then, let me just tell you. Now I can get into the deep theological stuff, I won't. I'm just going to leave it a little bit above. If you want to go deeper, grab a commentary. You will love to see the backflips I do over these passages because it's amazing. Charts and everything, mathematical formulas, you've got it. They're all in there, right? Um, Aren't you blessed to have me to unpack it all for you? (laughs) Um, So this, we're just going to focus on two key parts to this, which is the point Paul really wants to make. The first one is this. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. This speaks to the people back then and it speaks to the people here today. If you have any one of you people you know who have the big banners and flags of Israel, point them to this verse. We are not children of the present day Jerusalem. Let me make that really clear. Paul is saying it back then. How much more does he say it again today? Our Jerusalem is in heaven. And when you read Revelation, you get to the, to the end, it's not the Jerusalem that forms out of the ground, it's the Jerusalem that comes from above to earth. Those who stand for the city of Jerusalem today stand for slavery, the law. Because this was actually the same problem back in Paul's time people were pointing we need to be like we need to support like we need to act like and he's saying no 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 don't point to Jerusalem don't point there she is in a slavery and her children as well they live under the law you don't you're free and he compares them to Hagar This is a pretty harsh comment he makes. He has been making quite harsh comments all the way along. Last week, Andrew was fortunate to have them just kind of relent a little bit. (laughs) And Andrew uh, really shared, you know, Paul really did want to connect with these people. He loved them. He had worked with them. But now he's back into that whole mode of, okay, I love you and all, but you cannot keep going like this. And to the rest of the people, this is to one people, and then the rest of the people, he points it out in this verse. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, you are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. That word, persecuted, it's a word that runs deep in our Christian ethos, persecution. And he says it really clear, just like it was back then, it is now. Just like it is back in the two, you know, 2,000 years ago, it is today. This idea of being persecuted. And this is where I'm going to park myself for a little bit. Because I think this is really important. And we're going to go on a little bit of a journey around what persecution really is. And what it means. Paul's very last correspondence, the last thing he wrote that we have was a letter to Timothy 2nd Timothy and towards the end of that letter as he's about to die he's in the process of being executed he writes this to Timothy he says in fact everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters 
will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's interesting that he breaks them into two different groups, evildoers and imposters. Evildoers and imposters. Now, persecution, if we to kind of define what that is, it says this, a program or campaign to exterminate, drive away, oppress or subjugate people based on their belief or membership in a religious, ethnic, social or racial group. We can also throw in political, ideological group. That's what persecution is. That's how we define it. Now, if we want to think about persecution when it comes to evildoers and imposters, in general, persecution happens and is usually led by evildoers. Think of the Nazis and the way they treated the Jews, the Roma people, Eastern Europeans. They're, the Nazis were evildoers. There are parts of the world today, if you're a Christian, you are persecuted by evildoers. They will burn you. They will oppress you. This happens in the world today to Christians. But let me say one thing. In a country like our own, there is actually an absence of persecution. Now, some of us want to say, no, 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 there is persecution in New Zealand. I'm going to say, no, there isn't. You have the freedom to be here today. You have the freedom to pray, to wear a T-shirt that says, I am for Jesus. If you're here during the week, you can go down to Queensgate on the corner there. There's a young lad who has a megaphone and tells us, telling everybody they're going to go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. He has the freedom to do that. Brian Talmick and his crew have the freedom to block traffic in Auckland. We have freedoms in this country. The problem is we think of persecution when we can't impose our belief on others. We call that persecution. That's not persecution. Oh, they're not allowing Bibles in schools. We can't pray in the schools. And, you know, they're taking the Ten Commandments off here, there, and everywhere. That's not persecution. That's people living by choice. We are not persecuted because we can't impose our beliefs on people anymore. Persecution is when we can't believe or are oppressed or, or, or suppressed from believing in what we believe. When there is an absence of persecution, this is when imposters tend to rise up rather than evildoers. The difference between imposters and evildoers is really simple. Evildoers are usually from the outside coming in. So if you're a Christian in China, the outside government's going to stop you from meeting more than 10 people as Christians. They're not going to allow you to have a megaphone on the street corner. Imposters come from within. They are people within the church or within your community who start to actually persecute. And when there is an absence of persecution in a community, the imposters will start picking out the evildoers. They will start pointing out the things that are wrong that we need to stand up for. And because we all have this sense of belonging, sense 
or desire of acceptance, we tend to go along with them, especially if we start to think the same things. Think about it. Anti-vaxxers, labour supporters who are really... What other things can we think of? We will create these issues and we will start drawing the lines. They're called imposters. Paul is already addressing this in Galatia. He's not calling out the Romans. He's not even calling out the Greeks. He's not calling out the magistrates that are causing trouble. He's calling out his own people. And he says from the beginning in Galatians in chapter 1, he says this, am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. The problem is that imposters will use that for themselves. They will use that to further their way. And this is the problem we actually face here in New Zealand, just as they faced it back in Galatia. That it's not the evildoers we have to worry about, it's the imposters. Those who are actually causing division amongst us. In her book, um, uh, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, Becky Pickett makes this really interesting point. She actually expounds it quite a bit. We need to distinguish between the Christian being obnoxious and offensive in our relationship with the world. Obnoxious is wrong. Offensive is normal. And the one thing we need to understand is that as Christians, our message, our views are offensive. That's, that's normal. I mean, we talk about a man crucified to the cross. That's offensive. We talk about a Jesus who talks about the narrow road not the wide one, that's offensive. The message is offensive. We've got to actually accept that. And, and it's really interesting because <laughs> Becky makes the point, she goes, if anyone was guilty of being offensive, it was Jesus, not me. It was his idea that he was the only way to God, not mine. <laughs> I remember, actually, I, I think it's Scott McKnight that makes the comment that he's talking about an encounter he had with a guy who was just so angry. And the guy was like, these preachers, they keep saying Jesus is the only way. He can't be the only way. When we can't keep saying to people he's the only way. There's got to be other ways. We've got to be open to other things. And poor old Scott was sitting there going, uh, what do I do with this? And then the guy looks at him and goes, Scott, you believe me, don't you? And Scott's initial response, yeah, yeah, buddy. But then he had to stop and say, no. No, Jesus is the only way. I, I believe that Jesus is the only way. That's the core message of our gospel. If, if he isn't the only way, then why'd he die? It, it's offensive to people. But here's the thing. Offensive is a position. It's a position that we stand on. Okay? Obnoxious is an imposition. Let me break that down for you. I believe men should be circumcised. The offensive position is, I've been circumcised. I'm not saying whether I am or not. <laughs> We've already happened that too many times in this place. 
this is just the wrong thing to be talking about. But this is what the Galatians were dealing with, right? I can say I've been circumcised. That could be offensive to people. Some people may be offensive, be offended by that. What's obnoxious is you all need to be circumcised. That's an imposition. Right? Do you understand the difference? Here's the problem that Galatians are feeling. Here's the problem that Christians are faced with in Galatia. It's not the question of, I need to follow the law. I feel I need to follow the law. Well, why would you do that, Rob? I feel that's what needs to happen. Right? There's a difference, if I say that, to, hey, we need to be doing the law. And then we're all going to be sitting there going, do we? Do we really need to? And some of us will be like, yeah, well, you know, the Old Testament. I believe in that. Yeah, we should be doing that. Ten Commandments, of course. Imposters. Because actually, that's the debate that's happening in Galatia right now. Or back then. That's what Paul is dealing with in Galatia. Christians who are saying we need to be following the law. He's calling them imposters not true Christ followers how harsh is that so imagine today with the things that we all get rubbed up and I'm not just I mean, imposters who are obnoxious are on every wide spectrum let me make this really clear it's not just the right wingers who are forcing things on us I've got people even in very close to home here who tell me I should be open to everybody. And that if I'm not, I'm the one failing, not them. Now, hang on a second. Love doesn't work that way. I love my kids, but I don't approve of what they do half the time. I don't. I don't approve half the time of the things I do. Right? If it's a free-for-all, then where is the love? There is restrictions. There are restrictions. There are boundaries. There are healthy boundaries. So to say that you're open to everything, no. No, I'm actually not. I'm open to what Jesus wants. There are my boundaries right there. Where, where does Jesus stand with this? I'll stand there. Do I impose it on others? No. That's my position. My cousin's the loveliest bloke on the planet. You, if you knew him, you'd love him. You can't help but love him. You can't stand that I'm a Christian. You, bro, why are you a Christian? Really? How can you be a Christian? After all that you read about... And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, mate. I don't care what others do. My position is I love Jesus. He's number one in my life. I don't always do the best job of putting him number one in my life. And I fail just as much as all those people on the, on the newscasts do. It's offensive, I'm sorry. I'm not forcing you to be that way. I'd love for you to be that way. But I can't force it on you. My position is offensive. When we come to this story, or this part, these verses... Paul is faced with this massive dilemma of these Galatians 
who are struggling with how to live out their faith. And he's telling those who are standing by Jesus that you are actually being persecuted by those who are trying to force you to follow the law. He's equating it to persecution. It's when there is an absence of persecution from the outside that we then start turning on each other. It doesn't, we don't like to hear people say this, but no matter how good people do, we've got to watch out for imposters because they just drive a wedge. They do. And they might call themselves bishops. <laughs> they might call themselves whatever they want to call themselves, apostles. But you know them by their fruit, not by their numbers, by the way by their spiritual fruit. And Paul here is struggling with it. He's struggling with it and he's outlining the differences here. You keep going, you, 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 you've become slaves again. Jesus came to set you free and you, you have just enslaved yourselves again. That's not what we're here for. And then he says again, hey you, those of you who, who know better, you who are the children of promise, you're free. Do not hold yourselves down to this slavery of the law. And you know what? Persecution's going to happen. As it happened then, it's the same now. As it happened in Paul's time, it will happen for us today. Persecution comes in very different ways. We're always, always looking for the evildoers, but we never call out the imposters. We're happy to point Jacinda Ardern as being horrible and all this and that, because she's liberal, but we're not good at calling out the imposters amongst us. We're okay to judge the outside world. We're not okay to judge the inside world. And yet the Bible makes it so clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, don't judge the outside world. They don't live by our standards. Judge the inside world. They say they follow Jesus. Because the Corinthians had the same problem. How do we deal with these people? You're not dealing with the imposters. Forget about the emperors and the governors. Look what's happening in-house. And I think for too long as us Christians, we've just allowed these things to just kind of do their own thing. And then they explode. And who do we blame? We blame the media. Rather than looking at ourselves and saying, oh, we knew about that. Why didn't we say something? Before we turn to evildoers, let us be facing our imposters. Who are the imposters in your life? Who are the ones who are using scripture <laughs> that sounds just so right but it's so wrong who would have ever thought someone supporting the Old Testament and, and, and behind the Ten Commandments could be an imposter that's what the Galatians were faced with what are we faced with today Was that coherent enough? Because yep. <laughs> I have no idea how it's going. Oh, cool. Because they've got the lights down a bit here and it's all dark out there. And, um, 
It's already hard enough to breathe, let alone focus. It's a challenging aspect, guys. This is not an easy stuff. Galatians is a fascinating book that gets ignored quite a bit, except for the the great verses where it says there's no Greek or Jew, no male or female, because we like that one. But the rest of it gets completely ignored. Why? Because it's difficult for us Christians to read. It's personal. It's straight to the heart. It's about us. And whereas some of the other books might be talking in positive ways, like Ephesians about putting the armor of God on, or Romans about grace, Galatians is all about, whoa, how are you acting in this world? What are you listening to? What are you allowing to impact you? Because Paul's heart comes out really strong in this. And Paul's, he's Italian, he's got to be Italian. Most Arabs, you know, Mediterranean peoples, they just let everything out, right? Everything's on the sleeve. And Paul just, you know, why do I even bother with you all, he says earlier. Have I lost it with you guys? And you're like, Paul, have a glass of wine, come down. All right? <laughs> Someone's over here is going, yeah, I could use a glass of wine right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we're almost there, we're almost there. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. And for those of you thinking of the glass of wine, that's a good thing. Just wait till lunch. Um, it is five o'clock somewhere. My challenge for you this week is this. We have a lot that we listen to. We have access to all sorts of information. It's a wonderful world where we have YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and CNN and Fox and all these great avenues. I wasn't going to mention stuff, but anyway, I'll mention them too. The whole lot, we've got everything that pounds our minds. How do we discern what is of God and what isn't? What's an imposter and what's not? Evildoers are easy to spot. They're evil. Imposters, for the very word it means, imposters, they're, they're sneaky, they're hard to pick. That's why they're imposters. They sound great. They sound right. But that's where Satan lives. Right in that space. The Hitlers are easy to pick out even though lately that seems to be difficult. Sorry, how we're not picking out certain leaders in the world at the moment, I don't know, but history will be our judge. Who are they in your lives today? What are the voices misleading you, dividing you? Think about it. Lift it up to God. And remember that you are sons and daughters of the living God free, free, free at last. Amen? Amen.